today on the podcast, we are continuing our series, We Believe, talking about the person of Jesus. How's it going, Phil? Keith, it's going great today. I'm looking forward to talking about some red-hot Christology with you, brother. Red hot Christology. I can't say that I've ever heard that one before, um, but uh, that that's interesting. We're going to get into it here in just a minute. But uh, first of all, man, what a whirlwind of a weekend! Just uh, so much rain uh, and you know warmer temperatures, and now today, baby, it's cold outside. I'm not complaining. Uh, you know, this weekend not necessarily uh, the best of days, and of course, we weren't able to have our trunk or treat, which was kind of a letdown for me and for many other folks as well. But man, I'll tell you what, it is beautiful outside today. Well, let me ask you this question, Phil. Um, Thanksgiving and Christmas, do you prefer it to be warmer or just ice cold? Honestly, having grown up in Florida, I like wearing shorts on Christmas. I mean, I have no problem with it. You know, some people go crazy if it's not, you know, over 30 degrees or something or what have you. But uh, for me, I mean, I, I like a mild uh, Christmas. And uh you know, we go down to Florida normally for Thanksgiving, so things are always comfortable, never cold, but they're comfortable in uh, in November. As long as you knock that humidity down and you get the temperature down around, you know, 65, 70 degrees, I mean, that's that's good for me. Yeah, see, I'm a traditionalist. Give me the snow on Christmas Day, a white Christmas for me. Well, hey, let's go ahead and jump into the topic today, and that is the person of Jesus. Great message uh, this past weekend, and you brought up a lot of great points, a lot of great questions that we could ask in follow-up, um, but the first one is regarding the virgin birth, because you said that Christ being born of a virgin is a theological essential. Um, if it's that important, Phil, why is it only mentioned in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke? Great question, Keith. Uh, not just because that uh, that's a question that, that critics ask, I mean, people that don't even really believe in Jesus, but also there are a number of Christians who, uh, who just don't really think the virgin birth is that important. And, and they'll say, well, you know, I mean, okay, Phil, you think it's a big deal, but we just don't, we don't feel like it's a necessary thing, like it's an essential. So let's not get divided over something like that. So my answer to them would be simply that, well, how many times does God have to say something? In order for it to be true, <clears throat> yes, he, it's mentioned specifically and explicitly in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Interesting, John eight forty one. The Jewish uh, leaders are having a debate with Jesus, and in John eight forty one, they basically say, "We are not born of sexual immorality." Now, a lot of people see that, and they see that as a backhanded reference to what a lot of people were saying about Jesus, and that was that he was born of illegitimate background. Uh, even though they didn't bring it up and said, well, you know, uh, your mother uh, must have been fooling around with some other dude uh, in order to get pregnant, right? I mean, they didn't go into that much detail, but most people see that as a reference to what a lot of people were saying about Jesus, and that was that there was something, something fishy going on when, uh, you know, when, when Jesus was born, and certainly in the months preceding that. But this is kind of interesting, because there's all kinds of questions that come up about the virgin birth uh, along these lines. Well, how come it was only mentioned in two of the Gospels? Or how come Paul never mentioned it? Or Peter in his epistles? Or James? Or, or, or you know, and on and on and on. It's an argument from silence. Again, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Uh, I believe it. Certainly one of the reasons is because we have multiple attestation 
that two of the gospel writers included it. I think that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, like you said, God only needs to say it once. And I think, you know, the important thing to realize is uh, the underlying under, uh, understanding that God's Word is God's Word. It's not just stories that somebody made up. Um, so if God said it, I believe it. Uh, that's really good. Thank you for that. And that settles it. Come that, on, let's finish out the bumper that, sticker. That settles it, exactly. Um, well, that brings up another question about um, about Jesus as God's Son. And uh, one of the most, uh, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, uh, says that, uh, refers to Jesus as the only begotten Son. Um, what does it mean when it uses that language, only begotten Son, and how does that fit into the idea that Jesus is God the Son? Well, that's a great question also. In John 3.16, yes, it is probably the most familiar Bible verse uh, ever, right? So the, the, the word behind only begotten, and by the way, uh, begotten, that generally only shows up in King James translation, New King James translation, as well as the older versions of the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, the, the newer uh, New American Standard Bible does not have that. So it's kind of an antiquated language, and that's just how they, how they translated uh, the, the Greek word monogenes. So monogenes literally means only or one and only, uh, only one of its kind. It's found nine times in the New Testament. Uh, interestingly, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, uh, the word is used of Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. Uh, at least in that regard, uh, in terms obviously Abraham had you know another son, but the fact is with with his with his wife, um, Abraham, Isaac was his only begotten. So so there it's it's a relational kind of dynamic. Uh, certainly in John three sixteen it tells us that Jesus truly is God's one and only Son. But how does that relate to him being God the Son? Right, because it's one thing to say Jesus is the Son of God. It's another thing to say, although although they, they complement one another, it's another thing to say Jesus is God the Son, right? God the, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As we said on Sunday, a co-equal, pre-existent member of the triune Godhead, uh, the, the, the Trinity. So there's another verse in John that, that helps to explain this a little more. And again, this is one of the nine times when the word monogenes is found. By the way, monogenes is not just, as we said from Hebrews 11, is not just applied to Jesus. Uh, think about the times when someone came to Jesus and said, my son or my daughter is sick. Uh, in many cases, it was their only child. So the word monogenes was used by that person to say, hey, my, my child, my only child is, is sick, Jesus, would you come and heal? So again, it wasn't exclusively a, a Christological term. But John 1.18 is very interesting. Because John 1.18, and again, I'll, I'll, I have it in several different translations here. ESV says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The only monogenes uh, is in, that's how it's translated the ESV. The New International Version, of course, expands it a little more as a dynamic equivalent translation. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only monogenes, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Uh, New Living Translation, again, which is a translation, not a paraphrase. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, again, there, there's the translation of monogenes, who is himself God, 
is near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. So in a very real sense, monogenes, to say, to say only begotten, again, we've kind of already answered that. That's, that's antiquated, kind of King James language. Uh, but, but, to, but to use the language which pretty much every other translation uses, every modern translation uses in John 3.16, Jesus is the one and only Son along those lines. Uh, yes, that, that's to say that he is the only one of his kind that, that's related to God in that way. But John 1, 18, using the same word monogenes, more clearly tells us that Jesus is not just the, the, the one and only Son of God, but He truly is God the Son. Yeah, that's really good, and that is an important uh, distinction, because uh, they, they are, like you said, complementary, but, but different um, and important to uh, know the difference. Uh, well, that does beg another question, Phil, um, because this idea of Jesus... Um, being God the Son or, you know, being uh, equal with God, part of the Trinity, like you said. Um, some people have argued that Jesus himself never claimed to be God. Um, so what would you say about that, and what did Jesus actually say about his divinity? Yeah, this is another very uh, very practical and, and relevant question because, again, so many critics will say Jesus never claimed to be God, and any any connection with Jesus and deity in terms of his identity was was purely a fabrication on the part of you know his followers from 50 100 200 300 years later uh, again where they kind of turned a a, a a you know a good moral teacher this 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 uh, this Jewish peasant into this deified being and it's all it's all in the brains and the heads of uh, of, uh, of his followers. So I'll have to bring up uh, an interesting dude that I, that I actually spent some time with uh, several years ago when I was a student in Durham. He's a professor at uh, UNC, your, your favorite school. Keith. Go Hills. Yeah, Chapel Hill. I, I, I could say what they say about uh, UNC up in Durham, but it's not repeatable on the podcast, so I won't say that. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so Bart Ehrman, who was a professor at, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, very interesting guy, but in, in not a positive way. Uh, I actually met with him again for about 45 minutes because at the time I was looking at doing a PhD at UNC and, uh, and sat with him in his office and kind of asked him some questions about the program. And he was very kind to me to meet with me and so forth. But, but here's a guy who actually grew up as an evangelical Christian. I mean, a Bible-believing Christian, went to Moody Bible Institute and all of that, and then he went off to Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, kind of went off the rails from there. Uh, and, and just is completely opposed to what we would consider to be biblical Christianity and, and the, the, uh, the reliability of the Gospels. I mean, one of the, one of the false teachings that I brought up yesterday in, in church, but he's right in that camp. So one of the books that he wrote not long ago was called How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Okay, so here's some of the things that he says. You do not find Jesus calling himself God in the... In, in the um, Gospel of John or the last gospel, uh, he says you do find himself calling Jesus calling himself God in uh, in the last gospel in John's gospel. Jesus says things like, "Before Abraham was, I am, and I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father." These are all statements you find only in the Gospel of John, and that's striking because we have earlier gospels and we have the writings of Paul, and in none of them is there any indication that Jesus said such things. Okay. I think it's completely implausible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not mention that Jesus called himself God. If that's what he was declaring about himself, that would be a rather important point to make. This is not an unusual view among scholars. 
uh, at least liberal progressive scholars, right? It's simply the view that the Gospel of John is providing a theological understanding of Jesus and was not historically accurate. So again, the whole idea is that you you can't really trust the Gospels. They're unreliable. And uh, and in the in what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you can't... you. You don't see Jesus claiming to be God there, right? And of course, the Gospel of John, we can just throw that one out because Jesus actually never said any of that stuff. That's now I'm, I'm paraphrasing what Bart Ehrman would say. You know how it goes. So let's think about this. Let's just let me throw out a couple of examples of, of statements that Jesus made. Mark chapter eight. Uh, Jesus said, "For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him." Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels? Very interesting because Jesus compares himself and, and identifies himself as the Son of Man. Well, where in the world does that come from? Well, almost everybody believes that Jesus had in mind Daniel 7, the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel says in Daniel 7, And I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And then later in chapter 7, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That should sound familiar. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he, gave, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Remember what we said yesterday about people worshipping Jesus, right? So here's Jesus basically referring to himself as the Son of Man, who in the book of Daniel, oh, by the way, is worshipped. Okay, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, that's very interesting. Okay, Now, let's think also about Mark 14. We're just thinking about a couple of instances in Mark. Okay, Jesus in Mark 14 uh, is debating with the Jewish council. Okay, This is like when he's going back and forth with Pilate, and they're going to turn him over to Pilate to be crucified and so forth. Verse 61 of Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Again, High priest says, well, you've heard this guy's blasphemy. And by the way, notice not only does Jesus say, I am the Christ, but he specifically says, I am. I mean, that's like, if you say I am, that's the same language in the Gospel of John that Bart Ehrman says, this is bogus, we can't believe this. So here's Jesus making a very powerful pronouncement. And listen, man, we don't even have time to talk about the, the places in the Gospels, and I'm talking about the Gospels that Bart Ehrman thinks are at least semi-legit, Right where Jesus calms a storm, raises the dead, and forgives sins, all of which only God can do. Right? I mean, even when when, when Jesus made a pronouncement in, in the Synoptic Gospels about forgiving forgiving sins, what what was the ironic response? Only God can forgive sins. Right? So <clears throat> anyway, we could go on and on, but I just I, I I just don't I don't buy into this idea that Jesus did not think he was God on when he was on the earth and that he made no claims uh, to such a thing. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like those statements, uh, whether you know explicit or implied, were really the thing that, that got the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, 
really mad at Jesus. They, they probably would have been okay with him being a prophet that did miracles, um, but when he started to make some of those claims that put him on the same level as God, um, then, like you said, they, they tore their garments, they gnashed their teeth, they yeah, wanted blasphemy. to kill him. Cl- claims of blasphemy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, so we talked about Jesus being the Son of God, uh, God the Son, um, but you also talked about the fact that Jesus was sinless. Um, why exactly is it so important uh, to agree that Jesus was sinless? Well, first of all, kind of like what you said before, Keith, it's, it's a matter of just the, the, the trustworthiness of the Word of God, right? I mean, there, there are many references to Jesus being sinless. We shared at least three of them yesterday, right, from Hebrews, uh, as well as 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter, all, all referring to Jesus as being sinless, not just in terms of the fact, but also the purpose, right? The, God, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, we, we kind of rewind the tapes back to the Old Testament. And again, Old Testament says someone is coming. The New Testament says someone has come. I will tell you this, anybody who, who honestly reads the Old Testament and sees that it is telling us that someone is coming, has got to realize and got to admit that that someone is going to be sinless, right? A lamb without blemish or spot. I mean, all of which points to Jesus in the Old Testament. Someone is coming. It's To me, it's a no-brainer that that someone is going to have to be sinless in order to carry out with the purposes that have been typologically fore, foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So not only do we have the the... the just the, the trustworthiness of the Word of God in the New Testament when it says that Jesus was sinless, but also in terms of understanding the purpose behind his sinlessness from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, he, he's, he's got to have, have no sin. Otherwise, he cannot be a sacrifice for sin. Yeah, and that, that brings to mind so many examples of that, and one that just stuck out of my, stuck out of my mind as you said that was even in the beginning, in the garden, um, as Adam and Eve um, sin for the first time, they disobey uh, God's command, and um, they experience the shame of their nakedness. Um, and what does God do? He sacrifices an innocent animal and covers their nakedness. Um, and just the picture of the lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world, um, even in the beginning. It's incredible. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, well, one of the things that was really interesting on Sunday um, is that you said that there's um, this idea that sometimes goes around or has been around for a long time that says Jesus is the first and greatest uh, being created by God. Um, and like you said, that, that might sound right, it might sound good, but you said that it's heresy. So what exactly does the word heresy mean, and why would you put this particular phrase in that category? Again, great question uh, on for multiple reasons. First of all, and again, as, as you as you referenced, uh, you know, we pointed out that in in the the um, state of theology study that was done last year in 2022, uh, upwards of 55 percent of Americans said, "Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the first and greatest cre- being created by God." Okay, so let me back that up. Let's talk about heresy for a second, because unfortunately, in in, in our world today, from Christian to Christian. Because some people get so caught up in their own unique camps, they tend to throw terms around like false teaching and heresy or heretics way too often, right? I mean, 
you know, I, I've heard people refer to, say, for example, Pentecostal Christians as having false teaching, right, or the heretical teaching. Okay, so I have a pretty narrow understanding of what that means. Going back to the paradigm, the theological paradigm of Crossgate Church, unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, charity in all things, I'm not even going to bring up the concept of false teaching or, or, or heresy about anybody other than someone who is is just completely throwing the essentials out the window and saying, no, that's not essential. No, that's not essential. Because now what you're doing is you're basically breaking down the basics of the gospel. What did Paul the Apostle say? We shared this from Galatians 1, uh, verses 6 through 9 yesterday. You know, if anybody comes to you with a gospel other than the one that we preached, if anyone distorts the gospel of Christ that you received, let him be accursed. Right? I mean, one one possible translation of that is let him be damned. Right? I mean, so very, very a very serious protective posture on those theological essentials. Okay, so what's the big deal about saying that Jesus was created? All right, so first of all, in the Bible, and certainly in in, in a Judeo-Christian theological perspective and worldview. You have, and I'm motioning with my hands. People listening can't see me do this, but with my right hand over here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put God, the creator. And then way over here on my left hand, I'm going to put the creation, everything that was created. And there is an incredibly hard line drawn between the two. The twain shall never meet in terms of you know mixing. I mean, again, the creator and the creation. Not so with, say, Eastern religions and, and a lot of other religious perspectives from the world religions where uh, God, is, God is in the creation, right? And, and while we do believe God is omnipresent, He is everywhere, he, he, he is not part of the creation itself, right? Now, that leaves us only two categories. Where are you going to put Jesus? There's no third category. There, there's no middle way, okay? Now, because we believe that Jesus is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead known as the Trinity, all equally participating in create, in, the, in the act of creating. Okay, so either Jesus is over here in my right hand with God, the Father and God the Spirit, or he's over here in the creation. There, there is no middle ground. Okay, so that's why if someone was to say that Jesus was created, even if he was the first and greatest created being created even before the angels, even before Adam, that tells me he's not fully God. He can't be fully God. It, it's impossible. So again, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy who just throws around the word heresy left and right. I certainly don't label everybody who disagrees with me as a false teacher. But when it comes to deciding whether Jesus is created or if he's uncreated, uh, I say he's uncreated, and that is absolutely essential. In fact, just today I was reminded of the, um, you know, the, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, mostly the Nicene Creed because it, it expands some. But uh, part of that creed, even growing up as a Catholic, man, I'm telling you, I, I went to a funeral a couple weeks ago in a Catholic church. I, I've probably been in a Catholic church three times in the last 30 years. But the, 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 the memorization of, of saying the exact same thing over and over and over again, it does stick with you because I, I could have started rattling off a lot of the service 
even though I haven't been in a Catholic church in 30 years. But the phrase from the creed, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, that's huge. That's a big deal. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus is, is begotten. Yes, he is, he is God's one and only Son, right? He, but he was not made. He is one in being with God the Father. Anyway, we could go on and on, but I think I have put that one to bed. Absolutely. And speaking of putting it to bed, we are out of time for today. Uh, Phil, thank you so much. This has been great, and I can't wait until next time. Thanks, Keith. God bless you, brother. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the More and Better Disciples podcast, a ministry of Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. To learn more, join us on our website, crossgate.org.